So it is crazy that nobody went to jail over this. I was like riveted by this the second time around, which is kind of hard to do for a finance book, I think. Dude, you owe us $1.2 billion. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Rekindled with Michael and Ben. We had our heart set on calling this podcast Turn the Page, but at the 11th hour, somebody came in with Rekindled, and uh, I mean, it's just obvious in my in, in both of our opinions. It was perfect. And I'm a Kindle reader, so I this, it was just, yes, the perfect name. It rolls off the tongue better. So we made a last-minute audible. And on this first episode, my idea was to reread The Big Short because when I read it the first time, I was blown away. And it's been, I guess, 10 years or so since it came out. And on the reread, it, it almost became apparent, this is the goat for finance books. Is it not? I mean, this is the best well, finance book on. of all time. Hold on a minute. Like the the best book about money ever written? Is that what you're saying? The most readable book on finance. How about that? So this is my re re rereadable because I went through this book a second time uh, while I was writing my book, and I was looking for stuff about Joel Greenblatt. I think which you tipped me off to, and I actually ended up not using it for the book. But so so Moneyball was written or published in 2003. The Blind Side came out in 2006, and this book came out in 2010. But do you think... I mean, this was the book that made him world famous, was it not? Moneyball, to a certain extent, later, I think. But this one probably... Yes, I, I think a lot of people probably don't even realize he made The Blind Side, because they probably just equate that to like the Sandra Bullock movie. But in terms of finance circles, I mean, this is this is the greatest book written about the financial crisis, and it's not even close. Wow. How's that? Right? I mean... I was like riveted by this the second time around, which is kind of hard to do for a finance book, I think. Have you read Too Big to Fail? No, it was like 800 pages. I Neither have I. Have you read, um, <laughs> did you read Bethany and Jonah Sarah's book, All the Devils Were Here? No. So are you saying that my sample size is too small? I'm just saying. Anyway. Pump so the, I mean, Although, no, it was fantastic. And the, my first initial takeaway that I told you last week was... I can't believe that Lewis decided to not take the layup and profile John Paulson, who had the greatest trade of all time. And there was another book written about him. I don't know if that book was was being published in concert, but the fact that he chose these sort of different characters to profile for the book that weren't his big name, they didn't have the the billions and billions in profits as Paulson did in terms of so, shorting the housing market. Like I, it was yeah. so smart of him to do that. That's a very good point because some of the other hedge funds that that bet against the market were Baupost, so Seth Klarman, Harbinger Capital, which is Phil Falcone, Heyman, which is Kyle Bass, and to your point, John Paulson. So he could have went with any of those, and he didn't. And there was a funny part of the book. Somebody said, I called Goldman Sachs to ask him about Paulson, said one rich man whom Paulson had solicited funds for, and they told me he was a third-rate hedge fund guy who didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty, pretty wild. And he honestly, he devoted maybe... A page or two to Paulson for the whole book. So uh, uh, the yeah, fact he was that like he, a footnote. Yeah, so, the fact that yeah. he found these characters, which is that's what makes his book so good, is the characters, and he he admitted that. And so he talked in the introduction about Liars Poker and how it really surprised him when he wrote Liars Poker in the '80s that he thought that was going to turn people off from going into finance. But actually, right after it came out, he was getting questions from young people saying, "Okay, give me the secrets. I want to go work for Goldman Sachs now." Do you think this book had sort of a a similar impact in that it made a lot of people think they could find these asymmetric risk profile trades and that they could find the next big short and that they could bet on the end of the world 
and that ben, has hurt a lot of people. It's like you're reading my mind because I was ta- talking to Josh about that this morning. So in the prologue, uh, he said that they'd read my book as a how-to manual, speaking about liar's poker. Yep. And we saw Michael Lewis interviewed by Barry, and he made that a, a, a big point that the book you write is never the book that people read. And I think that you absolutely nailed it. And that was my takeaway too, that this book was even more a cautionary tale on the financial industry writ large. And I think that after this book, a lot of people actually went looking for the next big short. And it probably, probably, it's not something you hear about very much today, but it certainly was in the years after the crisis. That CDO shorting the housing market trade that Paulson and company put on and a lot of the other ones in this book that we're going to get to, that's a once-in-a-lifetime trade. And we had people trying to find that once-in-a-lifetime trade every year. I was going to ask you, is this a once-in-a-generation type of event? I think so. I, th- I think so many things set up, and it was not just a culmination of one cycle, but many cycles building on top of one another, that not saying that financial crises are not going to happen in the future, but one like this, this was just, I hate to use it, but perfect storm. This, this was just a culmination of so many different things. So I don't know if you caught this, but he dedicated the book. It said, for Michael Kinsley, to whom I still owe an article. And Michael Kinsley of the New Republic in the US, they published Liar's Poker or helped write Liar's Poker and publishes the anonymous exposés that he was writing when he was at Solomon Brothers. Oh yeah, that, he so told he used, about that. That was great. Who, who, whose name did he use? It was a female's name, I thought. And you know who discovered him was, he told us to buy, was Chevy Chase's father. Yeah, which is Or some, funny. some connection to that, which is, and yes, that Chevy Chase. So the, the biggest character in the book was Steve Eisman, who was played by Steve Carell in the movie. And the funny part to me was that stood out was he wrote in the introduction and he talked about Meredith Whitney calling for Citigroup to have their dividend cut. And he said, from that moment on, Meredith Whitney became E.F. Hutton. When she spoke, people listened. And it just is amazing to me how being right once in a row in finance can give you so much slack in terms of becoming a celebrity, basically. I mean, she's kind of gone now. I I honestly don't know what she's doing. But for a while there, she was the person that called the downfall of the banks. Yeah, she was everywhere. She was, yeah, certainly ubiquitous at the time. So Michael Lewis is, is easily one of the best character developers ever. So this book has 11 chapters. And in chapter nine, it started with Howie Hubler had grown up in New Jersey. And I'm thinking, wait, this book is almost over. Who the hell is Howie Hubler? I forgot about that part. And <laughs> I never, it said, that was the, the the whole kicker for that one was crazy. He lost more money than any trader in the history of Wall Street, and he still walked away with millions of dollars, which was, I mean, it's kind of hard to not come away disgusted after you read this book as well, which I think is one of the reasons so many people's brains got broken after the financial crisis, because there was so much just shady activity that went on, and very few people got ever got any comeuppance. And a lot of these banking CEOs and people that work for the banks and the people that that made a lot of money off of, frankly, people's houses, walked away with millions of dollars. And you can tell Lewis obviously felt that same way too, which can read the book. So Joe Cassano, who was the head of AIGFP, who was really at the heart of all these toxic collateralized debt obligations and, this, and the credit default swaps, there was a part in the book where it said one day, so this is a, a trader who said, one day he got me on the phone and was pissed off about a trade that had lost money. He said, when you lose money, it's my fucking money. Say it, I said. I said, what? Say, Joe, it's your fucking money. So I said, it's your fucking money, Joe. And this guy, Joe Cassano, was fired in March of 2008 
he received a $280 million in cash Gross. and an additional $34 million in bonuses and continued to receive $1 million a month until uh, the end of September 2008. And of course, AIG was bailed out by the government, which is really the taxpayers, to the tune of $130-something billion. And why was he there, Congress asked the CEO? AIG wanted to retain the 20-year knowledge that Mr. Cassano had, which is hilarious yeah. considering the fact that they lost $500 billion worth of, of, of toxic debt. So, so one a of lot my, of people are angry. And actually, don't you think that this book sort of led to Occupy Wall Street in a way? Yeah, I mean, it. <laughs> this was definitely the one. This this became like a popular culture book where people outside of finance read it. And when talking about the CDOs and subprime stuff and the stuff the banks did, I like this quote. He said, any business where you can sell a product and make money without having to worry about how the product performs is going to attract sleazy people, which is exactly what happened here. And that's he's one of them, obviously. And and the other one I like, he, he said, how do you make poor people feel feel wealthy when wages are stagnant? You give them cheap loans. And some of the stats in here about CDOs and subprime were pretty crazy to me. So he said in 1996, 65% of subprime loans were fixed rate. By 2005, 75% of them were some sort of floating rate, usually fixed for the first two years, which I guess it would... I, I kind of forgot this. They would start out at a fixed rate of 6% for two years and then jump to 11% after that, which almost seems criminal that those products were even allowed to be put out there in the first place. So a lot of these products that the CDOs were an amalgamation of a lot of mortgage bonds. And he explained this so simply. He is such a, a brilliant writer. And Ben, you can remember back to the CFA study days when we're learning about mortgage bonds and different tranches and stuff. And I think this just nails it in, in words that anybody can understand. These cash flows were always problematic as the borrowers had the right to pay off anytime they pleased. This was the single biggest reason that bond investors initially had been reluctant to invest in home mortgage loans. Mortgage borrowers typically repaid their loans only when interest rates fell. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. This is yeah, that was a good explanation. So a lot of these so the problem was even once these characters identified what to short or or how to bet against the housing market, it wasn't that easy. So New Century, which was a housing company, for instance, paid a twenty percent dividend and its shares cost twelve percent a year to borrow. So for the pleasure of shorting $100 million of, of New Century's shares, Eisman forked out $32 million a year. You know what one of the biggest takeaways I got from this book is that I, I can't remember what the exact Charlie Munger quote is, but he said, you know, if you make a bunch of money buying gold because you're planning on the end of the world, no one's going to like you anyway because you're just a jerk. It was something along those lines. But like making money during a crisis after, at, towards the end when all these bets finally paid off. And like you said, it took a long time for it to, to happen because a lot of these people were starting to short stuff in 2005 and 2006 before it really rolled over. And I got the sense that it didn't make any of these people happy to make all this money. They, in fact, a lot of them were miserable. They were losing clients. They were stressed out all the time. So I, I think making money on something like this is is so challenging. We always talk about the behavioral side of, of making money in like a hugely high-performing investment. But to, to short the world like this, none of these people were really happy to have it happen because they were just more worried about the, you know, the systematic problems that it was causing. Yeah. So we'll get to Michael Burry in a minute. But just getting back to, to what exactly these products were, Michael Lewis wrote, the CDO was, in effect, a credit laundering service for residents of lower middle class America. For Wall Street, it was a machine that turned lead into gold. Do you think this... I've seen this one a million times, this anecdote, how in Bakersfield, California, a Mexican strawberry picker with an income of 14 grand and no English was, was ever was lent every penny he needed to buy a home for over $700,000. Do you think that one could be made up? I feel like you see yes. that all the time. Yeah. But did that really have... I mean, maybe it did, but that was kind of one of the... But even... 
even if it's in that like that league, that stuff like that happened, and it and it did uh, right. millions of times over. So let's let's start with Steve Eisman, who to your point was a protagonist of the book, played by Steve Carell. And he had a background in the subprime market because he was an early analyst in this market at Oppenheimer. He had a great line in the book. He was talking about a company called Lomas Financial Corporation. By the way, we may need uh, earmuffs for this episode because there are so many great F-bombs in this book that I want to use from these quotes. But anyway, go ahead. So the, the Lomas Financial Corporation and a conference call said they were, they were hedged. And Eisman said... The Lomas Financial Corporation is a perfectly hedged financial institution. It loses money in every conceivable interest rate environment. <laughs> the best thing about Steve Eisman in this book was the fact that he would call everyone and everything, which I think is is something not a lot of people are are willing to do because maybe people don't like confrontation. But he was calling out bank CEOs and people who were running these mortgage companies. He called everyone out and basically said, here's exactly what's going to happen. And then it did. And he... Yeah, he was probably. I mean, he's got to be the fair, the best character in the book, right? I mean, him and Burry, it's pretty close. But he said about uh, the bank CEOs, they didn't know their own balance sheet. One time, he got invited to a meeting with the Bank of America CEO, this guy Ken Lewis. He said, "I was sitting there listening to him, and I had an epiphany. I said to myself, oh my god, he's dumb.'" <laughs> so here's another one at a public event in Hong Kong. After the chairman of HSBC, which is like one of the biggest banks in the world, claimed that his bank subprime losses were quote unquote contained. Eisman raised his hand and said, you don't actually believe that, do you? Because your whole book is fucked. <laughs> and there were so many instances where this guy did this. The, the other one, when he was debating Bill Miller, was that not an unbelievable story? So he's debating Bill Miller about the merits of Bear Stearns as an investment. And this is before stuff really hit the fan. So this is still in like March, in the spring of 2008, before stuff really got bad, like in the fall. And Bill Miller was saying, listen, I'm buying Bear Stearns because there's really no instance in history I can point to where an investment bank of this size went under. And Eisman was basically saying, good luck. And he said, just so you know, from the time you started talking, Bear Stearns stock has fallen more than 20 points. Would you like to buy more now? And that very next Monday is when JP Morgan bought him for two bucks a share. Brutal. And, I mean, Bill Miller is probably one of the greatest minds in all of investing. And, and he couldn't see this type of stuff. So one thing that I thought was really fascinating about Steve Eisman, to your point of just asking uh, questions over and over, he said, I can't add. I think in stories, I need help with numbers. And so to that point, he brought in this kid, or not a kid anymore, Vincent Daniel from Queens, who was really the, like the math guy, because Eisman is not a numbers guy, at least according to him. He's really a storyteller. Right. The Yeah. And, and the, the other probably... The, the biggest scene in the movie where they went to that conference, that was my favorite part where Eisman took all of his analysts and stuff and went to the conference. And that's when they really figured out like, oh my gosh, these people on this the other side of these mortgage deals have no idea what's going on. And the craziest one to me was they found some of these loans where the person defaulted on their very first payment. And so Danny Moses, who I, was he the one who was on Patrick's yes. Invest with the Best podcast? They, he found out, he said, who lends money to people who can't make their first loan payment. And, and then the other side was, well, who takes out a loan that can't make the first payment either? And that's kind of how crazy this stuff was. And I think one of the things people don't understand about interest rates and, and taking out credit is that it's not really the level of rates that matters. It's, it's how easy are people willing to extend credit. So rates right now are much lower than they were in the lead up to the crisis. But that really has nothing to do be, with how crazy things can get because all, it all depends on the lending standards and how willing pe these banks are to actually give money to people. So to that point, Michael Burry, who we'll get to in a minute, said, 
What you want to watch are the lenders, not the borrowers. The borrowers will always be willing to take a great deal for themselves. It's up to the lenders to show restraint, and when they lose it, watch out. By 2003, he knew that the borrowers had, lo- had already lost it, and by 2005, he saw that the, l- that the lenders had lost it too. Their, uh, their conference they went to was in Las Vegas. It was like a mortgage originator conference, and a friend told him that he'd met a stripper who had five separate home equity loans in Vegas in like 2007, just to show how crazy it was. So they said that like normally at a conference, there's 500 or so people. There was 7,000 people here. This was a conference about subprime mortgages. And he sat next to this guy, Wing Chow, uh, and uh, Greg Lippman, who also is another great character that we'll get to. So at the end of the meal, uh, Steve Eisman grabbed uh, Lippman and he said, whatever that guy is borrowing, I want to short it sight unseen. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever that guy is buying. I'm sorry. That was great. That That's almost like the... The Michael Mobison thing, like in terms of skill and luck, is involved in the markets. Like, if you can try to lose on purpose, like that, that shows how much the difference is between skill and luck. Like, it's hard to lose on purpose, but these people almost were losing on purpose. This, this was like the one anecdote where that kind of goes wrong. Well, you know, you know, there was something that Eisman said that really was like a huh moment for me. It's always said that bonds are the smart money, right? Right. Yeah. So Eisman said, you always knew that fixed income guys thought they knew more than you. And generally that was true. I wasn't a fixed income guy, but here I take in this position that was a bet against their whole industry. And I wanted to know if they, if they knew something I didn't. And of course the answer is they didn't. So maybe this throws a little bit of shade on uh, bonds of the smart money. Yeah, definitely. And, and again, a lot of it has to do with the incentives involved. So let's, let's move on to Michael Barry. Yes, he was the best one. He was he, him and Eisman are kind of neck and neck for me. But I loved the the fact that when he talked about how he figured out his investing strategy. So he was a doctor who was basically writing on these message boards at night, and he became some, something of an underground value investing hero to a lot of people because he was putting out these thoughts and ideas. And, He's like Jesse Livermore today. Yeah, the guy on Twitter. Yeah, if he ever wrote anymore. So he said, Burry did not think investing could be reduced to a formula or learn from any one model. The more he studied Buffett, the less he thought Buffett could be copied. And he said he also immediately internalized the idea that no school could teach someone how to be a great investor. If it were true, it would be the most popular school in the world with an impossibly high tuition. So it must not be true, which is just perfect that he kind of figured this out, which honestly is a place a lot of investors never get to. I would say that most people never get there. So Michael Burry, when he finally decided to leave medicine, was seated by a legendary investor, Joel Greenblatt. Uh, and I, he said something along the lines of like, I was waiting for you to quit medicine. Yeah, who supposedly in the 90s for like 10 years had 50% annual returns with Gotham Capital. And has written... The, the little book that beats the market is probably his most famous book, but has written a ton of really good books. And it's probably one of the better communicators and value investors that there is. And he saw some promise in Burry. But the crazy thing is that when Burry started shorting this stuff in 2005 and 2006, and it went against him, Greenblatt wanted to immediately get out and have him get, take these bets off. And, and the, I mean, the, the crazy thing is you hear about all these numbers about how good they did once you know stuff finally hit the fan. But in 2007... The S and P was up by like ten percent. Burry was down almost twenty percent, and he was shorting all this subprime CDO stuff. And at that point, he decided to put a gate on his fund, which essentially locked it up. And coming from Greenblatt's perspective, I can kind of see where he was coming from because you have this hedge fund who was a fundamental bottom-up stock picker, who then decides to short the housing market in these CDOs that 
I mean, honestly, even reading about him now, it's kind of hard to understand, I think, for, for the layperson. But at the time, no one knew what these things were, what they did, or how they would react, more or less. Obviously, the banks who were, putting, who were selling them didn't understand them. And so I kind of understand where Greenblatt was coming from. But Burry would explain this stuff to him. And Greenblatt, again, one of the greatest investors of all time, maybe, to- it was totally over his head. And he was really putting, he wanted to sue Burry to get out of them get out of those positions. So Greenblatt actually contacted Michael Lewis after the book was written, and this was in the epilogue. Greenblatt said that A, he never wanted to fight with Michael Burry. B, he only asked for his money back because he had investors asking for their money back. And C, and Michael Lewis wrote about this in the book, that Burry was not communicating clearly what he was doing, so they didn't understand. And Michael Burry was a value investor and was not necessarily a short seller. So when he went into this macro stuff, he was way out of his element. So to your point, it's not that surprising that the investors were like, wait, what? this is not what we were paying you to do. And they, they had the, the angle where Burry has Asperger's syndrome, which he realized later in life, and that makes it hard to communicate effectively. And so I'm guessing that there was a huge disconnect between what he was doing and how he was portraying it to clients. Yes. We, we spoke about uh, often that after the dot-com bubble blew up, it was like a value investor's oasis. Right. So in 2001, the S&P 500 was down 12%. Scion was up. The, his fund was up 55%. 55. S&P 500 in 2002, down 22. Scion up 16. And in the rebound in 2003, S&P up 29%. Scion up 50%. And by 2004, he was managing $600 million. And once everything blew up, by summer of 2008, which is honestly before the markets really blew up, but it was when the housing stuff really started blowing up. So his Scion capital from November 1st in 2000 had gained almost 500%. And at the same time, the S&P had gained 2%. The crazy thing is, to your point about Greenblatt needing money because his investors were getting money, it says in 2007 alone, Burry made his investors $750 million, but he only had $600 million under management. And honestly, you could think like, well, investors are dumb. But part of the reason is anything that did well during the crisis, investors used that as an ATM to get money out to put into other strategies that they had to shore up. So anything that did good effectively at that time got penalized. And there was a lot of actually CTAs and managed futures funds that were kind of the same way where their AUM didn't go up as much as you think because people didn't have enough money. They had to take it from something that was doing well. So Barry said, if there was one moment I might have caved, that was it, when Joel Greenblatt was pressuring him. He said Joel was like a godfather to me. Could you imagine the an, an alternative path, which is easily imaginable, where he was like, you know what? I'm out. I don't need this. Here's your money back. And so Barry said, I hated discussing ideas with investors because then you become the defender of the idea and that influences your thought process. Once you, have, once you become an ideas defender, you had a harder time changing your mind about it. And he also wrote, a money manager... So, so we don't think about like, the, the emotional toll that these ups and downs take on these people. Right. He said, a money manager does not go from being a near nobody to being nearly universally applauded to being nearly universally vilified without some effect. Yeah. Like, again, I think this was so mentally taxing. And the people that think... Like in hindsight, oh man, I wish I would have done something like that. I could have made a ton of money. It was so hard. You can really get the feeling. And this was after the fact that they knew the outcome. These people still talked about like they had like a traumatic experience. And I mean, the best mic drop after it happened was Gotham didn't say anything to him after they made, they basically doubled their money. And he sent off an email that just said, you're welcome. And he decided he was going to kick him out of the fund. And then they asked what the price would be because they took a stake in his actual hedge fund company. They gave him a million dollars to seat him. And he said, how about you keep the tens of millions 
you nearly prevented me from earning you last year and we call it even. Like such a mic drop. Wow. Like that, I mean, just like, see you later. That so one of the amazing. reasons why this was so hard, especially because nobody knew at the time or nobody could see the future, was that these instruments weren't working in the way that they thought. So you saw cracks in the housing market, but the credit default swaps weren't moving. So he said, what if credit default swaps are fraud? I'm asking myself that question all the time and never have I felt like I should be thinking that way more than now. No way we should be down 5% this year just in mortgage credit default swaps. It basically sounds like the the industry was so new that the banks didn't know how to price them. So even when subprime mortgages started falling 20 30%, the CDOs weren't really falling as much. And the the other crazy one, so they talked about Morgan Stanley had a credit default swap that like they when they figured out how to price it, it was almost a certain to pay off. So they said for to to pay back everything, a pool of losses in the this subprime thing of mortgages would only have to fall four you know four percent in terms of default, which is like less than what happened in a regular time period, and so like the hurdle rate for making money in these things was so small, but again it just it it wasn't easy for people to understand it at the time. So these credit default swaps were insurance on bonds defaulting, and basically as we know now they all did. So Michael Burry was paying 2.5% for this. AIG underwrote the credit default swaps for 12 basis points. Right. I know. 12 it's basis points. They were yeah. giving this away for free. So Goldman was the underwriter, pocketed the difference. They would write $20 billion in credit default swaps and take $400 million in risk-free profits. So that's why this just kept going and going and going and going because it was really what, what felt like risk-free money at the time. And obviously, we know how it turned out that it wasn't risk-free money because these bank stocks pretty much all lost 90%. The, funny, uh, the funniest one to me about the banking thing was Eisman said they decided to short Merrill and they put zero due diligence in on it other than he said... <laughs> We have a simple thesis. There's going to be a calamity. And whenever there is a calamity, Merrill is there. <laughs> Amazing. So when the market finally did start to crack, Michael Lewis is such a great writer. So it was a, he said it was the first time in two years that Goldman Sachs had not moved the trade against him at the end of the month. That was the first time they moved our, tr- our marks accurately because they were getting in on the trade themselves. That was Barry speaking. Here's Michael Lewis. The market was finally accepting the diagnosis of its own disorder. Right. And that was that was also you could see the turn where these banks finally realized like, oh, we need to turn it around and not only put all this stuff, get all this stuff off of our books, but we need to start shorting this stuff too, which I think is Goldman was probably the first one to realize it. So it is crazy that nobody went to jail over this. Yes. I mean, it, I don't know how you would have litigated it and, and but whatever, but like there was obviously criminal activity in terms of were people just was it actual criminal behavior or were they just idiots? Michael Lewis said there were more morons and crooks, but the crooks were higher up. Yes. And his other quote that I liked was the big Wall Street firm seemingly so shrewd and self interested had somehow become the dumb money. And he, he so he said at a first Merrill said they had seven billion dollars in losses, and like a few weeks later, admitted, "Okay, it's actually fifty billion." <laughs> Which they had—I mean, maybe they didn't know exactly, but they had. To, that's a big difference, obviously. Uh, yeah. So the Cornwall Capital is another one that was. Th- this is almost like a Silicon Valley story because these guys started the fund in their garage, and they had like one hundred and ten thousand dollars in a Charles Schwab account, and it grew a little bit because they were buying like these leaps, which are these very far out of the money call options on stocks and they grew their money a little bit and they turned a million dollar bet into more than 80 million and again it's just these guys in their garage 
And I think they were the ones that came off as the most scared. Like they were worried that the whole system was going to come down. And the, the the crazy one to me was, so they, it says in March, 2007, they bought insurance against the collapse for Bear Stearns for less than three tenths of 1%. They put down 300 grand to make 105 million. Because again, it was the Bill Miller idea. Like there's no way a company like Bear Stearns that has been around for so long could ever possibly go under. So obviously these things were, ridiculously mispriced quote the bookies were offering you odds of somewhere between six to one and ten to one when the odds of it working out felt more like two to one anyone in the business of making smarts bets couldn't not do it i think the honestly the biggest maybe criminals and all this and this was in the latest michael lewis podcast as well about referees is the rating agencies and he said in late may once it started to once they started to realize like these things are really going under the big rating agencies S&P and Moody's decided that they were going to reconsider their bond rating models, but they only started it for new, newly rated bonds. And so these guys from Cornwall Capital hired a lawyer and called Moody's and said, "Like, listen, if you're going to rate these new bonds like this, shouldn't you rate the old ones?" And they and they wouldn't do it yet. So it was, again, they were so far behind the eight ball. But I just don't see how that business model is still in play, where they get paid by the actual bond issuers to to come up with ratings on their own debt. It just it just boggles the mind that nothing changed coming out of the crisis from that. Greg Lippman was one of the more colorful characters in the book. He was played by Ryan Gosling in the movie, right? Yeah. I think the movie's worth a rewatch. I haven't. I only saw it when it came out. It was hard for me to... I didn't think that... I mean, the movie obviously didn't live up to the book for me, but it was... They had enough good actors in it that it was all right. So towards the end, when it started crumbling down, he said to Morgan Stanley, because they were saying, well, our model shows 77. Our show 95. And he's like, it's 77. We see 95. He goes... Dude, you owe us $1.2 billion. <laughs> he was good. I mean, he's like the, the arrogant kind of guy you picture as a, like these other people that were profiled are kind of on the outskirts, but Lippman is like the finance guy. And so he said one of his Deutsche, Deutsche Bank colleagues said to him that he's going to call him Chicken Little now because he's talking about the end of the world. And Lippman said, F you, I'm sure your house. <laughs> <laughs> the other one was his other <laughs> argument was. And he, t- he was pounding the table on this stuff. And I think he got a little bit of his intel from guys like Burry and Eisman. But once he figured it out, he ran with it. And he really like put his foot on the gas pedal. Uh, well, he also introduced this idea to John John Paulson. And he was right. basically screaming about it to everybody that would listen. They were like, why are you, why are you trying to screw up your own bank? Like you're, He's like, I don't care. I just work for Deutsche Bank. Like I'm not married to them. And no one... No one would listen to him. So he said, you know, why is no one listening to me? And, and a lot of people would say, like, you're right, but it's not my job to short the subprime mortgage market. And he, he kind of said, oh, wait, that's why this opportunity exists, because it's no one's job to do this or understand this. So he, uh, he had, didn't he find like the second smartest kid in China to run this analysis for him? Right. Yeah. They, you finally needed a little math behind it. But yeah, once it happened. So I guess the bottom line with all the like there was math geniuses and Jim Grant hired an engineer a PhD to look at this and nobody could figure out what exactly was in these products. Right. <laughs> yeah. And th- that was the other one, the fact that even the bond rating agencies didn't have all the information when Eisman and his team went to them and said, you know, give us some information on this that we can use and they said, we have the same amount of information you do. And he's like, well, was how it, do you rate these things if you don't have that? Wasn't there a story, I don't know if it was in The Greatest Trade Ever or this book or the movie where they were at like the U.S. Open, and somebody said to one of the bank CEOs asked about about these products, and the bank CEO replied, "What's a credit default swap?" Right. <laughs> so when I in early 2007, I was kind of in the market for a new job. I was about to get married at the time, 
and had a buddy who worked for a CDO servicer at, at a bank in Chicago. And he said, I know you're in the market for a new job. You're not really in banking, but come interview with us. I think it's a great job. People are making tons of money. And I went to this, this bank and it was tons of young people. I mean, I'm talking, we're all under 30. We're all like the VPs of this CDO servicer. And I had, again, I had no idea what a CDO was. I basically had to Google it. And I told my friend that I'm like, I don't know what this is. And he said, no one here does either. But as long as you like put a little work in and, and Google it, you know, just show that you're looking. And <laughs> Don't worry, just Google it. And these guys were working 70, 80 hour weeks trying to service these things. And honestly, they had no idea what they were. And I got a job offer, but I turned it down because they told me, they asked, are you married? And I said, no, I'm engaged. I'm going to be married in a few months. And they said, oh, that's not, probably not a good thing because you work so much here. And so ended ended up not working out. And boy, am I glad I didn't take that job because it was like six months later, everything blew up and the whole unit basically was shut down. Wow. Yeah. I, I just, the whole book kind of brought some flashbacks back to the whole thing. And it, it does kind of make you angry all over again at a lot of this stuff. But again, my, my biggest takeaway from an investing perspective was just how hard it had to be for these guys. So Burry said, after he made his like $800 million in 2007, and basically heard nothing from his investors in terms of like, thanks, like, oh my Lord, I can't believe you did this for us. He said, even when it was clear that it was a big year and I was proven right, there was no triumph in it. Making money was nothing like I thought it would be. Great lesson. That, that, that's, that's a lesson that probably people are like, yeah, I'd like to figure that out on my own. Like, yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. But just all the everything coming at him from all sides. And, and I think he kind of started shutting things down and, and probably would have liked to invest it more if he could have, but he just couldn't get the money from investors to do it. So a lot of the names on this list, a lot of the people that made money from the big short probably haven't fared so well in the, in the, uh, in the, in the ensuing 10 years since. Yeah. I mean, you, you see them in the headlines every once in a while. You know, person who, call, who shorted the mortgage market is doing this now or this. And uh, I think a lot of them seem to have kind of gone out of the spotlight a little bit and probably they just didn't need to do much more. But yeah, there aren't many people in the book who killed it, who have killed it since. Which which makes sense, I guess, but which just again shows how hard it is to to do something like this and pull it off. It's almost that once in a lifetime thing, like when you win big at the casino, like walk out and and get out of there. So when we uh, spoke about doing this, I said, you know what, I'm not going to reread this. I already reread. It. I'm just going to skim it. But it sucked me back in. I, I didn't finish the final two chapters. But this book is absolutely. I don't know if it's the best book in finance uh, history. It's it's got to be up there, though. Yeah, I'm in. I'm on total recency bias mode here. But after reading it again, I think like just the combination of the storytelling, the characters involved. I think it, it it's got to be the goat. I think if not the one, then in the conversation because it was just yeah, it was just so good. This is like his his masterpiece. I think. Yep. So, all right. I think that about wraps it up. Are we good, Ben? Yep. Yeah. Send us send us any ideas and thoughts. If you reread it with us and send us some thoughts on some other books. We'll, I'm sure we'll probably read some other Michael Lewis ones in the future, but we're going to want to get to some other ones first. Yeah. We're not exactly sure what the format of this is going to be going forward. If it's going to be one every three weeks, one a month. This is a lot more work than I anticipated. So yes, I don't, it is. <laughs> I think that Ben and I originally thought we would do this once every two weeks. That's not going to be possible. No, but we'll let people know in, in, in ahead of time what books we're going to read. So if you want to read along with us, but uh, we'll give you some, some fair warning. So anyway, send us uh, an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. We'll talk to you later. Thank you.